welcome to the Naked Podcaster. Today I have with me Suzette Sutton Frizee. And Suzette and I know each other. We live close enough to each other that we've actually met. How are you yes. today? I'm great. How are you doing today? I am wonderful. I've been waiting for this for a couple of years, actually. Yes. <laughs> it has been. <laughs> Life yeah. happens and gets in the way, and it has it to does. be the right timing. You, your website is gracefilmsllc.com. So I want to jump in with that first. Okay. Okay. Yes. Yes. That is my website. Um, I'm working on building a uh, production company um, here in Reno. And uh, my heart is basically um, not just producing really good, great, amazing films um, that touch people's hearts, but also touching the community. Um, so whenever we produce a film, um, we will then take a portion of profit and give it back to nonprofits that serve our community. I think that's very important to do. So that's the heart of our company. I so. love that. And because mm -hmm. we're in the same community, um, we've connected with several of the same people and nonprofits and getting word out. And uh, Reno is an interesting place. Mm. <laughs> oh, yes, it is. It's an odd amalgam. Jump in on that. Well, um, actually, this, this has to do with our first film. I, I um, you know, when we first moved here, my husband and I, um, I've lived here about seven years. I noticed, you know, I knew that we were going into a community that had, you know, um, prostitution that is legalized and um, gambling that is legalized and, and other things like that. And I just, I thought, you know, I'm going to kind of look around at people and, and see how this community really is. And I've noticed as I've lived here that, you know, there, there's a lot of people that are struggling in our community. And, and, you know, at the time that I really wanted to do something, my kids were young, so I really couldn't. And I said, you know, I'm going to wait a few years and see what happens. And then I got to a point where I said, you know what, uh, my kids are old enough. They, I don't have to wipe their noses or butts anymore. Um, I don't have to cut up their food. So it's time. And so I said, you know, I'm a praying person. So I said, okay, God, what, what should I do? What should I do at this point? And this story kept coming back to me. And I, I've written, you know, I've kind of dabbled in writing, but I never really wrote a concrete story down. But this story from beginning to end was in my heart. And I said, I'm writing this down. So I wrote it down and I realized quickly that, it, you know, the story really fit into what some people struggle with in, in our uh, community. So the story is about a, a young woman who uh, was forced into prostitution and she's, she's had some just abuse in her life, um, in her childhood and in her obvious adulthood because she's forced into this. And she's rescued from it by um, a very kind gentleman who then puts her in a situation where she's staying with another man and he he's he's kind but he's you know he has his own struggles so they really together kind of have to find peace in their own lives and it's um she's able to find peace and she's able to um really rise above kind of like the phoenix rising out of the fire she's able to rise above her situation and realize that she, you know her situation doesn't define her she defines her. She defines who she is. And so anyways, it's called Flower in the Sun, kind of like a flower grows in the sun. And, um, and I really, once I had this down, I said, wow, 
you know, I could do something with this. And that's where this Grace Films was really born from the story. I said, I could do something with this. And why not, you know, why not pull in nonprofits that serve our community? And I said, why not just not, because at first I was looking at one, I said, why not more? Why not do more? So now we have three that have um, partnered with us and I can say them because they, have, we, they know all about it. I have Exquisite from Carson City. They serve the needs of women who have been uh, just abused and, and just had terrible things happen to them. They serve any needs that she has. So that's what they do. And then I have the pregnancy, uh, Crisis Pregnancy Center of Reno. Mm -hmm. And of course they serve many needs of a woman who's really finds herself in a situation that she might not want to be in and that she's scared. And then of course, um, the last one is Awaken. And of course, that's a, a nonprofit that serves women um, that have been rescued from uh, uh, trafficking. So those were really appropriate for this story. Yeah. And, and then I thought further, I thought, you know what, I'm looking futuristically. I want to uh, have stories, not just this movie, but I want other movies that deal with other situations in our society that need to be looked at. But I also then want to take um, a profit from those movie movies and then send it to different nonprofits. And I'd like to even expand more and more with what we can do in, in the future and hopefully even be nonprofit myself. So that's, it's, that's, a, that's amazing. Yeah. So it's, it's big, but you know, <laughs> that's okay. One <laughs> that's step okay. at a time. That's one step at a, one time. Step at a time. I think it's interesting, like you said, in Reno where, um, you know, not that it's the only place, but gambling is very prevalent. Stripping is very prevalent. Seven miles outside the city, prostitution is legal. Yes. And I know that because we're on the border of California, uh, when I was working with foster kids, sex trafficking, this is one of the biggest hubs for it, which seems so yeah. odd to me, mm -hmm. but it, it definitely is one of the biggest hubs in the United States for sex trafficking for kids. So that was a yes. huge thing when I was working with foster kids. Oh, yes. And, you know, and, and that's the thing. I, I'd like to do two films here, but I plan on expanding. I mean, there's so yeah. many communities within the United States that just need, you know, they have a lot of amazing nonprofits that serve them, but I want to help those nonprofits. I want to do something. And I, I want it to be big. I think it should be big. And, it, you know, I, I think that something like this can hopefully spread to other people who are yeah. in the industry um, because it's really unheard of, unfortunately. I think more people should do this who are in the entertainment industry. I think it's so important because we have each other. We're, we, need to, we need to serve each other. I mean, if one person has the idea to do it and doesn't do it, maybe somebody might come along. Mm -hmm. But if you have that idea, you should do it. I mean, it, I just think it's so important that we, that we're there for each other. I mean, in today's age, there's so many things that are out there that for, you know, that unfortunately harm different sectors of the society and we need to be there for each other consistently and in a big way, you know, that's the only way we're going to change things. So this is, this is what I plan on doing. And this is what, I've been working on for the last and, couple of years. And you're trying to get people to come along that journey with you, whether it's yes. funding for films or collaboration on yes. other people's films. Um, 
So you're always looking for that because now I've written a book and I've written blog posts, but writing a screenplay is a lot different. What was that process like for you? Um, You know, it was, it really wasn't as difficult as I, as I had imagined because there's so many different softwares out there that help you too. Oh, okay. Yes. Like I found one that is just perfect. It was perfect for me. And so you really just, if you, as long as you have the idea, you know, the story, you just, and the characters' names and the situations and all that stuff, then you just plug it in. And, you know, obviously you have to still have, you know, the whole story. Right. Um, but it's, it makes it so much easier. Because okay. I have to admit, it was daunting at first. I was like, oh my goodness. I, I was looking up like indenting and I didn't know at first. And then somebody said, oh, there's so many things you can look at here. I was like, ah. That makes it so much easier. Like clearly I was surprised. I had no idea because someone asked me recently if I had considered writing something into a screenplay and I was like, oh my gosh, you've got to be kidding me. Like just the thought of that was overwhelming. So now it's not, it's not overwhelming. No, that's, that's awesome. Okay. So that part's not as hard as I, cause that, that was the first hurdle I just couldn't imagine getting past, but you'd think with the advent of technology, it would be easier. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the stats were in 2019 for Reno. I know a couple of years ago, the, this is the other odd thing about Reno. We have, it's a, it's a location in the United States that has more sunny days per year than mm-hmm. most places in the United States. And you associate with sunshine, um, with that high vitamin D. And so that makes people happy because the opposite mm-hmm. makes them sad. We're super outdoorsy, uh, lots of trails, lots of things to do, not super awful winters. Um, although you can go skiing, Tahoe is your backyard. We're four hours from San Francisco, two hours from Sacramento. We can drive in seven hours to Boise, Salt Lake or Vegas. Mm-hmm. Okay. So like on paper, it looks great. And then on the census reports until recently, we had some of the highest unemployment rates. And the reason that they're better now is because we have USA Parkway, which is the largest industrial um, location in the world. And so the average uh, wage per hour in Reno is $11 an hour. So we have lower Mm -hmm. unemployment, but like we're not paying people. Right. You know, so unemployment and jobs and the cost of living, there's a huge discrepancy in what people make and what the cost of living is. So it was rated one of the highest places to most expensive places to live in the U S high unemployment. We, we used to have one of the highest suicide and divorce rates in the nation. Hmm. And I don't, like I said, I, I haven't looked at the census reports in a couple years, but i I'm thinking you look at Reno on paper and it looks like this amazing place to live. Mm -hmm. And then you look at the stats and it's so off for me. So it's a great place to really want to tap in. Um, I think with gambling and with um, prostitution being legal, that really adds a different element to it. Because a lot of people that are probably working in, in those industries, both of them are living in this Reno area. So oh, it's absolutely. a lot of work. You have it your work is, cut it, out it, for you. And it is, you know, it is, uh, Reno itself, the housing is very expensive there. Um, my husband and I live outside of Reno for that reason, because it just, it, for the amount of house that you get for the dollar is is crazy. Mm-hmm. I mean, very, very expensive. So it's it's kind of, yeah. I, I, I 
recently I've been involved in uh, working with the homeless and I've heard so many different stories of, you know, uh, an older person who may have lived in a, you know, hotel or a motel, you know, the kind that you pay weekly or monthly. Yeah. And now they can't afford it. Yeah. And so they end up up on the street, not of any fault of their own. And I've, I heard so many stories. I, I read, actually, I didn't read. I met a woman. My husband and I met a woman that uh, was a teacher for years. She taught. And she just one thing after the next happened and she just couldn't afford living anymore. And now she's on the street and, you know, there's a lot of social issues that we need to tackle. Yeah. Um, And not just in Reno, it's everywhere. I mean, as you, it is everywhere. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, like you talked about the biggest, uh, Reno being one of the biggest hubs of sex trafficking. Mm -hmm. I lived in Detroit for a while. Mm -hmm. They have a huge problem there too. Detroit. I don't think there's any place that there's not that we don't have these issues, although there does seem to be pockets where they're concentrating on, concentrated in. And I don't know if there's a correlation in this, but Washoe County, our county is listed, was at least a couple months ago, as the second worst school district in the nation. Mm -hmm. And it'd be interesting to see if there's a correlation between some of the worst school districts and the sex trafficking rate. And I have no idea, no idea. But yeah, the average first time home is four hundred fifty thousand dollars right now. Mm-hmm. I know it's crazy. I mean, this is this is released in June of t- two thousand twenty. So it is how much crazy. Of, it, it's crazy. It's insane. So you're tackling. You're in a unique area, tackling some really huge problems mm-hmm. and absolutely looking for uh, funding and film for filmmaking and really reaching out. But those nonprofits are incredible. So, oh, they are. I mean, they're, I was impressed by every person that I met at each, each one of them. And I become friends with, uh, with the uh, directors. So, you know, it's, you have to have a special heart um, to do, I think, to do things like that. Because like, for instance, Exquisite, I'll talk about Brenda, my friend, Brenda, I've I've, uh, met with her numerous times. She has a heart for ladies and I love, she has a heart for ladies that are struggling, that don't know their worth. And one of her, the things that she says is, you are diamond strong. And she reminds these ladies that just because somebody has, you know, exploited you or abused you, doesn't mean that's who you are. You are diamond strong. You have worth. You have worth in my eyes. You have worth in other people's eyes. You have to have, see the worth in yourself so that you can rise out, up out of that, um, maybe depression or whatever they're struggling with at the time. And she's just such a strong lady. And I just, am just honored to know her. Um, and I can't wait to see what we can do and what we can do for exquisite through, uh, through the film that I'm working on. So, yeah. Let's go back in time with you. You said, you yeah. mentioned Michigan. I don't know if that's where you started, but let's go back. Okay. No, I actually, I grew up in Syracuse, New York. I call it sore excuse because of the weather. The weather is horrible there. I mean, uh, on average, I want to say it's like a hundred inches of snow a year, a season, which is a lot of snow. Yeah. Um, so I, I was, uh, let's see, I am the youngest of four. Okay. I have an older brother and two older sisters and my parents actually have kind of an interesting story. Um, they, my mom was a nun at one point. Okay. 
Yes. Yeah, and my father very was very New a, England thing. I'm from New yes, England. Yes, yeah. So yes. my mother's from Michigan, actually, but she okay, okay. She she went to a convent high school, and right. then she became a nun. I, I want to say it was for at least a year. Um, so I have pictures of her in full habit. That's <laughs> awesome. I always think it's funny. Yeah. My father actually had gone to the seminary. I think it was in New Jersey. He went to a seminary. Um, he decided not to continue. He actually uh, became a musician, got a master's in music um, in San Francisco. He's been everywhere. And then he ended up in Flint, Michigan. My mother lived there at the time. Um, she left the convent, moved back to Flint, and they ended up getting married within nine months. So then they moved to Syracuse and settled down and uh, had uh, all four of us. And, you know, I'm, like I said, I'm the youngest. Um, and, it, you know, I have to say I had a pretty normal upbringing. I mean, I was a tomboy climbing trees, beating up the boys in the neighborhood, you know, all that fun stuff. Um, you know, went to the schools were pretty close. So we'd walk to school, just normal childhood, um, except for the fact that my mom ended up getting sick when I was four. So she had a, she was like dropping things and, mm. uh, not able to play with us like she could in the past. And so we had found out at that point she had, they called it myelin degeneration, which it, now they call MS. And so she, my childhood really was, uh, my early childhood was really taking care of her needs because she lost the ability to walk by the time I want to say I was nine uh, or 10. I was like nine or 10. And so, you know, I had to do laundry. I had a cook full meals at the age of eight and nine for my family of six, which was a big deal. Um, we all took turns doing that because my mom couldn't do it. And, you know, there was, I never really blamed her, but at the same time, you know, there's a loss there. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? And my dad, my dad was tough. He was kind of military style of uh, discipline, disciplinarian. And he's a good guy. He was a good guy, but he was probably tougher on us than he needed to be. And, and I imagine it would have been difficult having a sick wife with four kids Yeah, yeah. and working full time because she didn't work. Uh, she stayed home with us. So it was, it was a difficult time, but, um, you know, they made it work the best they could. And um, it just, I think the thing that was hardest for me is uh, by the time my mom couldn't walk, I, be, I being the youngest, I was home. So I really, a lot of the responsibility was put on me because my siblings were kind of at the rebellion stage of life. So they were like, I, I'm not staying home and helping. So they would go off with their friends and, and I was home and taking care of my mom. And, um, you know, my dad was working. And so it was, it was interesting. Um, I, I don't think I change it, but I don't think that responsibility is really fair to a kid at the same it's time. It's out of order, I think. Yeah. Well, I had to be the mom, basically. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, that, that changes a child. Um, I, think, I think in a lot of ways, I was a pretty lonely child, even though I was a fam from a family of six. Mm -hmm. um, I really was a deep thinker because, you yeah. know, when you're, when you're in that situation, my dad didn't really have time to listen to every one of his kids, you know? Yeah. So I think that's why my siblings were rebelling. I wasn't really a rebelling type. So, um, you know, so I stayed home, but I just, I never really expressed um, 
how I felt because I wasn't really given that stage too, if that makes well, sense. Well, what year, what, what year were you born? Just out of curiosity. Oh, I was born in 1970. Okay. Same as I was. So yes. you're talking about 1979, yes. you know, if you're around nine years old and yes. there, it was sort of a different world back then and there's nothing mm -hmm. necessarily good or bad, but it was definitely different. I don't think the dads at that point were as in tune with the kids. as like now right. my husband with our kids, I mean, it's not even in the same world remotely. This is true. Yeah. Uh, my dad, my dad was not the biggest conversationalist. Now he, he's a, he, like I said, he was a great guy, but he just, um, you know, you start talking about how you feel. I remember my dad had one thing he would say, what he would say, it's not about feelings. That was one of his favorite things to say. It's not about feelings. It's not about feelings. And so, you know, if you're hearing that a lot, <laughs> then you don't express how you feel. <laughs> right. So, <laughs> you think? <laughs> um, exactly. So, you know, and, and, and my mom, I, I always felt bad for her because she felt, she felt terrible that yeah. she had to be taken, the person being taken care of rather than taking care of her kids. Cause she was a wonderful mom when we were little. Mm -hmm. I mean, she would be on the floor playing with us from what I remember and, uh, you know, bring us places. She had a, an amazing sense of humor, always making us laugh. And, and then she couldn't, I mean, it, it was gradual, but it was, but it was quick at the same, I mean, five years is not that long to not be able to take care of yourself. So, um, you know, from the age of my, you know, I was four until the age of nine, I, I want to say nine or 10, it was around that time. That's not a long time. Um, no, she lost it's abilities, not. You know, and, you know, and I, I, I would get, I'd get mad as a kid because I would want her to come to the school functions and, um, I remember I was in brownies. I think it was like six or seven. I was in brownies, you know, like the Girl Scouts. Mm -hmm. And she did it one year. She was able to be a brownie leader, and then she couldn't because she could. She just couldn't do it. And you know, driving. I remember the same thing. She had to quit driving when I was pretty young. So she she did the best she could, but this kind of she was kind of given a crap sandwich. <laughs> You know, so yeah, no kidding. And they didn't have any of the information at that time like no. they do. I mean, it's really not that it's a great diagnosis now, but it's a right. lot different diagnosis now. And I think five years is pretty fast. I think that's going, that's changing and going downhill pretty quickly. She did. She yeah. did. And, you know, and they tried, I remember she went through the, uh, oh gosh, they tried this treatment called ACTH treatment. I think ACTH okay. is a hormone is a hormone that's uh, secreted when women are pregnant because they found that women that have MS when they're pregnant they go and uh, they all the symptoms seem to disappear or most of the symptoms seem to disappear and then as okay. soon as they have the child like about six months later they'll usually have a relapse and mm -hmm. and so they thought ACTH which is a hormone again that's secreted at that time during pregnancy they think that they thought that that was a hormone that would prevent attacks. And so my mom went to the hospital. She had to have uh, infusions of ACTH, treat, you know, and uh, it didn't do anything. Um, it didn't, except the, I do remember there was this young man that had been burned um, that I met at the hospital. He was probably about, mm, I say he was probably about eight. And I mean, he, he was really badly burned. And so that was kind of neat to meet him and see his resilience and his strength going through that. But, but the treatment on my mom, it didn't do anything. She just kept getting worse and worse and worse.
So. And then you're a tomboy playing mm-hmm. with all the kids in the neighborhood. Yeah. Uh, youngest, the quiet, yes. sweet one with no feelings. <laughs> I don't know if I was quiet and sweet, but... but did I just know. make a logic ju- I just did a jump there that... Uh, I was I'm, just Spock. I was Spock in a kid's body, you know, Spock from Star Trek, because he doesn't yeah. have any feelings. Yeah. <laughs> and so t- take me through some of what that was like. Um, You know, I... I didn't have any girlfriends, so to speak. Um, I mean, I had my sisters, but they wanted to play dolls. I, I, I climbed trees. I, my favorite thing, I had this favorite tree in our yard. And I would, I remember I would take my lunch in a paper bag, like on the weekends or during the summer. And I would just put it in my teeth and I'd climb up that tree and sit in the fork, you know, and just mm-hmm. eat my lunch and watch people. And that was my favorite thing. But all the friends I had were guys, were boys. Mm-hmm. And so I would, you know, I had a couple of boys across the street I'd play with all the time. And, you know, I, there's this one kid that I just didn't like him. So I beat him, I beat him up and I still <laughs> feel bad to this day for the hat, but I did, I would, I would just look for him and beat him. But I think that was partly frustration in my situation too. And then I, there was this uh, neighbor down the street. Um, I actually was friends with his sister, but she was a tomboy. And my brother was friends with him. And so we would go down there and we would play, although we were technically, my parents really didn't want us playing down there because there wasn't a lot of supervision. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I didn't know at the time why, but of course now I know why um, as a parent. But um, anyway, when I was, I'll go right into this. When I was nine, um, you know, I, for years had gone back and forth to this house and played with a sister and my older sister was friends with a sister. And um, so I, she had a couple of older brothers and a younger brother. Um, so her, her, uh, her one brother, um, I always liked him. Uh, I'm not going to say his name, but I always liked him. He was always nice to me. He had a, a special name for me and I, I'd rather not say it um, yep. for reasons. And, you know, he'd call, so I felt just special because, you know, when you, when you're taking care of your mom, you're feeling lonely, you know, I just felt special. So this one summer, it was 1979. Mm -hmm. Um, My parents weren't home. My, my dad, um, my mom could still with a walker kind of stand up and get herself in the car. So he would bring her for long drives and stuff. So they were probably out on one of their little drives. And so we were home, we were playing, and uh, that young man came to the house because uh, he was hanging out with my brother, and he was 14 at the time. And he basically, you know, got me in a room and convinced me to take my, you know, get down to nothing and did some things to me. And I would go into detail with my 13-year-olds in the other room. Mm-hmm. And he basically, um, basically raped me and he had locked the door and my brother must've heard something because he knocked at the door and he said, is everything okay in there? Well, after this happened, I, of course, was an innocent nine-year-old. I didn't know anything about any of this. Um, and I mean, I had heard about, about sex, but I didn't know details because I'd never done it. Right. And I knew, I knew that was wrong. You know, kids know, I mm-hmm. knew that was wrong. And I knew that I didn't want to. And I knew that I wanted nothing to do with that. And I wanted to forget all about it, but I couldn't. And so that night 
um, my sister, Michelle, I can say her name, my sister, Michelle, she, um, she said to me, she, she, she could tell something was off with me because I just wasn't acting the same way as I normally act. And I was scared. So I climbed in bed with her and I normally didn't do that. Mm-hmm. And she had asked me what happened. I told her and she was at the time 12. So I told her and she knew immediately what had happened. And she said, well, you need to tell mom and dad. And I'm like, I don't want to tell mom and dad. But I said, would you, will you go with me when I tell them? Um, Because otherwise I'm not telling them. And she said, yes. So the next day, my dad had this huge garden. Everybody oohed and out over my dad's garden because it was in the middle of the city, (laughs) you know. And so he was tending his garden. My mom was sitting in a lawn chair. And I went out and I told him I had something to tell him. And I remember Michelle was kind of off to the side um, because she wanted to support me. But when I told my dad, you know, being 1979 and people didn't talk about this stuff, he told me he didn't believe me. And boy, I tell you, you know, the the, uh, teacher in Charlie Brown, wah, 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 wah. That's I didn't hear another word he said after he said that. And I remember in my little heart and in my mind, I'm saying, I'm never going to cry again. This, this is not something that I'm just, I'm never going to feel or cry again. And, and for years I stuck to that. I, I stuck to that. I never cried. It was tough. I, I just water off a duck's back. That was my mantra which isn't healthy, by the way. No, no it's not healthy. No, no. Yeah. Glad, you, glad you brought that up. Nope, it's not. Yeah. No, it's not okay. healthy. I would not recommend that. So I was a stuffer for years and yeah. I was angry at my dad. I hated my dad for years. Um, I do have to say the amazing thing that helped bring me out of that was because my mom was getting sicker and sicker and sicker and sicker. Mm-hmm. My dad more was expected um, from him to take care of her. Um, and he, he had always said, I'll never put her in a nursing home. And he didn't. So he worked his work schedule around taking care of my mom. So, cause he was the main breadwinner and I helped take care of my mom too. So we worked together, but I saw my dad turn from a, you know, that didn't happen to you to, I just saw him change over the years because when you have to take care of somebody, it changes mm-hmm. you. And it changes you usually in a positive way, unless you're an absolute jerk. <laughs> it yeah. changes you in a good way. It really does. Yeah. And so I saw this change and that helped, that helped me to get, become closer to my dad, even though I was holding this against him. Thankfully, before he died, my dad is, is, uh, is deceased, but before he died, um, he had come to me and he had said, and he was going to each one of us kids and he had said to me, he said, Suzette, if there's anything I've ever done, I've ever done to you that hurt you, can you just tell me? Because I, I don't know. And so I told him. And that was very healing because we just, we, you know, he, he asked me for forgiveness. I forgave him. And we were able to move on from that, you know? Wow. Good so, for him. That's yeah. incredible. Yeah. I so. mean, that makes me pause and think maybe as a parent, you know, especially when you were, if you're trying to do a great job and it's also the best that you can, you're going to make mistakes without realizing it. We're very human. Very. Oh, oh, absolutely. So I would have to say the same thing. Like, wow, I don't know if there are things that are unresolved with the kids that I could have done differently. Mm -hmm. That what a great thing that he did that. 
my, my dad, my dad, you know, he was a tyrant when we were younger, I always mm -hmm. say. And he would, he would, if he were sitting here, he'd admit it. He was like, I was too hard on you kids. But toward the end, I saw softening. That was just a beautiful thing to see. And, and I think every parent, myself included, should look at their kids and say, okay, is there something that I could have done? Ask them, is there something that you would have preferred I, I had done different? Or is there something you would want me to do different now if they're still young? Like I tell my, I ask my kids that a lot. I'll mm -hmm. say, or, or if you make a mistake, there's no shame in saying that you're sorry. There's no shame in saying that I made a mistake, you know? And, yeah. Yeah, I uh, definitely am good at apologizing. <laughs> I, I am too. <laughs> well, I, I mean, too. we are human. And sometimes you're put into a situation with your kids where you have to react instantly. Of course. And you realize after the fact that it wasn't the best way you could have reacted. But that's not because I want to react badly. Right. You know, I mean, yeah, we're all human. So this happened. Well, I want to tie up this kid down the street that was 14. Did he ever touch you again? No, but he, but he, he, it's almost like he used that nickname. I, it's hard to explain, but it's almost like he, he would remind me every time he saw me without saying anything. Does that make oh, yeah. sense? Oh yes, it does. And so I would just, my skin would literally crawl. I couldn't even say his name for years, Yeah. but my skin would crawl because I was old enough where I made sure that I was never in the room alone with him. I yep. made sure I was never around him again alone, ever. I, and I really didn't go to the house anymore on purpose because, mm -hmm. and I did try talking to his sister one time about it, but they had a lot of problems in, their, in that family. Um, there was a lot of sexual abuse um, by adults to kids, uh, by siblings to younger siblings. So she didn't really want to talk about it because yeah. they didn't talk about it kind of like, you know, it was swept under the rug. And so I just let it go. You know, I just never talked about it. And, and I actually, you know, when I go back, I still will see um, his sister. Mm -hmm. um, I have nothing again. I mean, I've always been friends with her. I right. love her. So, right. So by the time you're 12, you said your dad's doing, he's working his schedule, but you're mm -hmm. also being asked to be a primary caregiver mm, for yes. your mom by the time you're 12 because she's continuing to deteriorate as you're stuffing your feelings down <laughs> oh yes in, in this time period between 9 and 12 correct yes it was uh it was hard because i had to do i mean i one of the hardest things is i had not yet had my period okay um i i, I hadn't gone through puberty at this point but my mom would have one of course and so i would have to change her tampon, which, which a lot of people be like, Oh, and it is, Oh, you know, <laughs> um, it's, it was, it was very difficult. It was, um, there were other things we had to do too, because she couldn't go on the toilet. So we had to evacuate her by, I'll just say using a rubber glove <laughs> and lubricant. And those things, a 12 year old doesn't want to do to their mother, let alone not even themselves. Well, know? I was just going to so say that I wouldn't, those wanna, were hard. Yeah. Those were hard times. I mean, I, I resented being put in that position. I mean, I even had to give her shots. Um, I forget, of, I don't remember what it was of, to be honest with you, but I'd have to do it in her backside. And I never was angry at my mom, it was more my dad, because there was this pressure. Um, because my 
older siblings were off doing their own thing. I was the only one home. So there was this pressure on me. And I always thought that wasn't fair. He should have probably gotten a, like an aide to come in or somebody to come into the house to help. But he, he honestly, he couldn't afford it. Yeah. Um, so, so really everything was relied upon us. And I was the one that was there. <laughs> so I can't imagine taking care of someone at that level. I think most of us as adults can't imagine taking care of someone else to that level, let alone at 12. And I also think because it's expected of you, there's an assumption that you're like, you're it. No one else is going right. to do it. Yeah. There's got to be some resentment there. But you know, there, there was, I don't resent it anymore. I would never do it to my own daughter mm -hmm. and my own son. But, um, but I do have to say it's made me who I am now. I don't, don't get me wrong. I would, if I could take any suffering and pain away from my mom, cause that, that had to have been humiliating to have her child, um, doing that for her, but it's still made, it's made me who I am. I mean, I'm, I'm resilient. I'm strong. I'm probably a little bit more sensitive than I should be at times, but you know, but, but it's made me realize, um, <laughs> the importance of certain things in life. I mean, we, you know, you know, how they say stop and smell the roses. Mm -hmm. You got you. That is really wise advice because people at life just fly by past them and they just assume and they just, and that, do, that doesn't make them bad, but they miss out on so much on, on compassion toward others, on sympathy, on, um, on taking care of another person just does something to you. It, and I don't know, it's really hard to explain unless you've ever done it. Um, well, you're a mother, so you've taken care yeah. of babies and older. So you, so that it's, it's similar. Um, it's, it's really, it's, it's hard, but it's really the biggest blessing you can have because it really makes you uh, look at things in a different light, in a, in a kinder light, if, if, you know, if you will, I mean, I don't know how else to put it, but it, I don't know. It just, I, I, don't have regrets. I just wish my mom didn't have the pain that she was in and, yeah. and didn't have to deal with that. You know, um, so I'm thankful for having that experience um, because, you know, when my dad was dying, uh, he was on hospice. We were able to have him in my home and take care of him because, you know, <laughs> to me, that was important yeah. um, for several reasons because I have compassion on him. I didn't want to just dump him in a home, but also um, I had always promised him because he had taken so such good care of my mother. I mean, he was such a good husband. He stuck by her and he loved her to the day she took her last breath. Beautiful, beautiful thing to see. And he was a, just a good man to her. And so I always promised him I would take care of him if he was ever in that position. And we were able to, and it's just such a, it was such a blessing to, you know, but if I didn't have that experience with mom, I wonder if I would have thought that way. Probably not because I, I think, I think a lot of us, when we think about our parents hitting a certain age and needing to be taken care of, that's overwhelming. Like, where do mm -hmm. we put them in our house? How do we do it? Is, right. Are we going to be able to afford it? I mean, immediately I can tell you the things that come to mind. My mother-in-law um, was diagnosed with cancer and she lived with my brother-in-law and his wife. They stepped up and said and we we offered also to have her in our house and they had hospice so they had people coming in and helping but they had to put their you know squish all their kids in one room and move themselves and sleep in the living room so that she could have a room set up and 
Mm-hmm. It was certainly not easy, but you know, everybody kind of pitched in and it was the same thing. And it was three very long months where we really got to have great conversations with this mom. But right. when you're faced with that situation, there are a lot of things that you're asking and trying to figure out. It's not easy. And with you, it was a different thing. You're like, oh no, we got this. Right. Or I think the rest of us is like, how are we going to get this? <laughs> you know? Right. Well, you know, and it's, it is very disrupting. And I, I want to say dad was it wasn't, it was maybe three quarters of a month that he was in our, our home. And we had so many people at our home helping. It was really just a beautiful thing. So we were talking about living room filled with mattresses. Literally, yeah. we had, I think the most people we had were 12 in our wow. home at one point. So dad's, you know, hospital bed was in the living room. And we just surrounded, we were just surrounding him um, because he, we knew he wasn't going to last very much longer. Mm-hmm. So we wanted to spend as much time as as we could with them. And it was, I was just so glad that we could do it the way that we did it. Yeah. And you know, it's, it was hard. I mean, it's always hard to watch somebody um, pass, but I'm still glad that we were able to do that for him. So So you were 12 mom's Mm -hmm. doing worse. And then you, you ended up graduating and you postponed college Mm -hmm. to take care of your mom. Right. Cause she was, she was um, bedridden for what, 15 years, something like that. So okay. my dad, you know, he had to still work, of course. Yeah. So I would go to college classes, come home, make dinner, take care of mom, do whatever I needed to do. So it was back and forth. And then the last uh, semester of college, um, mom got very, very sick. And so I wasn't sure I was going to graduate. I actually had to postpone that because she ended up dying the very last semester of college. And I, the college I went to, um, it's, a, it's in actually in Syracuse. I went to Sy- uh, Lemoyne College. Mm-hmm. Wonderful professors. They were so supportive. And, you know, about a week after my mom died, I went right back and they were so surprised to see me. But, uh, you know, I mean, honestly, I had grieved for those 15 years prior that. Yeah. So yes, I was sad. I mean, my dad and I talked about this. We, we were sad, but we were relieved yeah. for her to be out of that body, you know, to be out. I mean, cause that's a, that's like being stuck in a tomb yep. for 15 years, just stuck. And so, you know, that was, it was hard, but it was, I was so glad to go back to school. Yeah, exactly. So I did graduate. I graduated. So I was going to say, so you, you graduated yeah. and then you met your husband. Well, that was quite a few years later. Um, okay. I, after graduation, I uh, started teaching as a librarian at a little tiny, tiny Catholic school in uh, Syracuse. It's no longer open. Loved it. Loved that job. And every summer I would have off. So I would go down to North Carolina my sister lived there. She lived on the beach. Mm-hmm. So, you know, of course I'm going to go down there for the, my yeah. summers. So I went, I would visit every summer and just hang out with them. And they met my husband um, through their church. Uh, he was okay. a Marine at uh, Camp Lejeune. He was a Marine there. And so he would come over and go surfing with her husband, with my brother-in-law. Uh, I don't know if it was every sun, su- um, Sunday, but most Sundays. And so Anna said, oh, you've got to meet this Marine. And I'm thinking, oh, no thanks. So anyways, we met each other and neither one of us were like, yay. We were like, yeah, whatever. (laughs) But we did become friends and we dated for about 
oh, two and a half years before we even thought of, um, or not dated, I'm sorry, we were just friends for two and a half years before we even thought of dating. And, um, but once we dated, it was pretty quick. It was like nine months later, because we already knew each other. We yeah. hang out. We do things all the time. So yeah, so we were married. Oh gosh, two thousand five. <laughs> I have to think so about what, it. So were your sister and her husband like it's about time? Um, not really. No. no. Okay. Although Anna, my my sister Anna, she was like, oh brother, Suzette, you know, he likes you. I mean, at this one point, she kept telling me he likes you, and I'm like, I don't know, <laughs> you know, and it just kind of from there. I finally asked him, okay, what intentions do you have here? And my husband, my husband's very straight. He said, well, I thought we could, um, we could court to see if we're compatible for marriage. And I was like, hmm. And at this point, you know, I, I was in New York and um, he was in Minnesota. And I said to him, I said, well, if you come visit me, because um, I had just gotten out of a bad relationship, I said, you, you need to prove that your interest really interested in this relationship by coming to visit me on a consistent basis. And he did, no matter how hard it was, he, he came, I want to say he came every like six weeks. He, he wow. Did. Yeah. He would fly in and, and it was hard cause he was a, he was a, uh, I don't know if he was a captain at that point, but he was in the Marine Corps and he was in a recruiting office. Very hard to get away in that situation, but he did. So that impressed me. <laughs> Yay. Yay. Okay. Yeah. We like him. He passes. Yeah. So you have two kids. Mm -hmm. Okay. Two children. And you guys ended up, you ended up moving to Michigan when you married him, when you married yes. your husband. We were in Minnesota okay. at first and then okay. we moved to Michigan after okay. my daughter was born. And then we so had my son there. You have, so you had two kids and then I'm, I'm reading. Um, so you have two kids. Life's fine, right? Yeah. Nothing. And then tell me what happened. Well, six months after my son was born, I, I had this terrible headache one night. And so I, I said to my husband, I'm, I'm going to go to bed because my head hurts, my neck hurts. I'm just going to go to bed. Well, the next morning when I woke up, my, um, my right arm, uh, hand, everything was numb and just weak. I could barely lift it up. And I thought, well, maybe I laid on it, pinched a nerve, you know, all the things that we tell ourselves. I said, oh, maybe it's, you know, it's no big deal. Well, th that full day, nothing came back. I mean, it just was the same. And I said, hmm. And, and at that point, I knew at that point, I was sure that I had MS. And I, it's funny because I had, I had nightmares when I was a kid um, that I, I don't know why I was spanking my child. Don't ask me why, but the nightmare was I would be spanking a child okay, and my arm wouldn't work. It would get weak. Okay. And it was my right arm. And so I always said, all right, you know, cause I believe in God. I always said, all right, right. God knew this situation was going to, was going to happen. So yeah. he was preparing me. I don't know why I was spanking a child, but he was pre preparing me so I wouldn't be so fearful, but, but I have to admit, I, I was fearful at first because I seen it all those years. You know, I seen my mom oh, decline from terrified. It. However, <laughs> God is good because I have no fear at all. I have peace. I don't like it. Um, but I have peace about it. Um, it, it's not going to keep me down. It's not going to keep me back. I'm going to do, I'm going to work on this movie anyways. I'm going to do what I have to do in life regardless. 
which I love. And I think you learned that probably also from watching your mom and that it's not 79 or 74 anymore. I mean, you're going into this with eyes very wide open. Oh yes. And yes, it would be an awful diagnosis. I think I'm going to give you my personal take on the dream, the spaking the child, you wouldn't have remembered it like you do unless it was something bizarre like that. True. It I mean, weird. I think it is weird. <laughs> and I had it continual. It's, it, I didn't only yeah. have it once. I probably had it like five, six times when I was younger. <laughs> so I'm going to be a terrible uh, mom and my arm won't work. Perfect. Right, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so you get the diagnosis and then, you, I mean, life is happening. Your kids are growing up. Tell me, I know you hit a point where you decided you, you wanted to be more than a wife and a mom, and then you've taken this, th- that's when this story started mm-hmm. to come, you started writing your story. What happened with the MS in that interim period? Where are you at now with it? And how, I mean, my gosh, everything you've been through in your life makes us understand why you wanted to start the company that you started but when did you say okay enough i'm going to do this because this is what i really want to do despite everything else um i think it was you know i think there was some fear at first how can i um uh, my body gets weak my mind as you can tell sometimes i struggle for words my mind gets fuzzy um because of it Uh, words don't come to me sometimes and so it's, it can be very frustrating. But I said, you know, I said, I can either sit in all the knowledge I've been given in this life and all through all the experiences I've had, I can either sit and keep those to myself and be selfish with those. Or I can say, you know what, I, I, I'm going to push through the weakness. I'm going to push through the fog brain, brain fog. I'm going to push through the whatever symptom I'm having that day. And I'm going to, I'm going to do this. I'm going to continue doing this. This people, people who are healthy, uh, make movies all the time and impact our society and with their movies. I, I am not healthy, but that's okay. I'm going to take that and use that as a strength, if that makes sense, and just push myself because I, God's given me a tenacity through all this to say, you know what, um, if I have to drag my legs behind me, I'm going to do it. So that's that's. That's really, it gives me the oomph. It reminds me that, you know what, I'm doing this anyway. I, I don't care what's, what stumbling block is in the way. I'm doing this anyway. Um, I'm, I'm living life. I'm raising my kids. I'm being the wife. I'm taking care of the house. I'm whatever, fill in the blank. Yep. It has given me the strength and the tenacity to continue um, because I'm not letting MS beat me. It doesn't define who I am kind of like what I said about the, the whole uh, character in the beginning with the movie. It, mm-hmm. I, her name's Amelia. I'm kind of like that Amelia. I'm not going to let my situation define who I am. Suzette is Suzette because Suzette says who Suzette is, <laughs> you know? So How much different could it have been with your mom, do you think? Is, it, is there a difference in how the treatments for MS are now or is a difference in attitude or early diagnosis because your mom was downhill rapidly yeah. in five years where for you, when were you actually diagnosed? How long ago? I was diagnosed in 2008. So I mean, we're talking years. 12 years. Yeah. yeah. Well, there's different varying types of MS. See, okay. MS is kind of like cancer. Okay. 
you can have any type of cancer. There's, you know, cervical cancer, breast cancer, uh, you know, whatever, eye cancer. Mm -hmm. It's like the Band-Aid, you have cancer. It's like the cover, you know, the, the name, you have cancer. It just, yep. MS yep. is the same thing. There's varying types, okay? There's, there's uh, some people have it where they have one attack in their life and that is it. They never have another one. Um, some people have it, they're the other extreme where they have uh, like uh, Selma Blair, that actress Selma Blair, she had a major attack, MS attack, and she's still struggling to come back from it. But she's definitely doing better than what she was. Her voice was like really, you know, and, and just weakness and, and she's doing so much better. But, but she had a major attack that I don't know, I don't know what medicine she's taking, but it seems to have come back a little bit, but still she's not where she was before. And that's the type my mom had. She'd have an attack and then another big attack. Another, it would just compound on each other. And she'd just get worse and worse and worse. With mine, I might have an attack of like, I had dizziness one time where every so often the room would spin. That was fun. It was like the yeah. wheel of fortune. It was like being on the wheel of fortune. <laughs> the room would spin and I'd have to stop. This was a few years ago. And so I realized that was probably an MS attack. So I... Um, I don't take medication, by the way. I use a uh, diet and I, I try to do it through exercise, like just getting up and walking. Okay. And um, diet is huge. And keeping what, what you put in is what your, how your body is. Yeah. <laughs> you, you're, if you have a sensitivity to certain ingredients or certain uh, foods, you should avoid them because they'll cause inflammation. And that's what causes the problem. Um, you know, your body reacts, your immune system says, oh, I don't like this. So then it, you get attacked. And um, so anyways, um, so I think I'm healthy because of diet, exercise, and maybe mindset. Mm -hmm. um, I think my mom declined because she just had a really bad kind. And, and honestly, with four young kids, the diet probably wasn't the best and she was overweight. Um, and because she didn't take medication either, except for the ACTH and the, the one I had described and that whatever that shot was, that wasn't she didn't take the, um, some of the medications that are around today were actually around okay. in the eighties. She didn't take any of those. I think the only thing she took was the ACTH and then she did, um, steroid treatments sometimes. And, and you can only do those so much. Yep. Um, and so if I find that I have an attack, I'll just, um, I have steroids mm -hmm. and I think I maybe have to take them twice a year if that. So. That's incredible. I'm so thankful that you explained it like a cancer diagnosis because that mm -hmm. instantly put it in perspective for me. Yes, you're. I now I get it. Okay, I understand. MS isn't just cut and dry. It is this right. way and always this way. So thank you for that because oh, I don't know if I'm the only one out there with, <laughs> with that question or that like mystery. To me, you have it or you don't. But right that makes sense but i think i mean i have a daughter with arthritis i there have been so many we could come up with probably a hundred different ways that you and i have seen people who have changed things or controlled things through diet i have a son that's autistic and a daughter with arthritis and it mm -hmm. was all control has all been controlled through diet and exercise and attitude so so you hit this point where you just knew when you got diagnosed it was not going to rule your life right Absolutely. And then as the kids got older and they're teenagers, that's when you decide now I'm going to do something that I want to do on mm -hmm. top of being a wife and a mom, which woohoo. Exactly. <laughs> Cause you need to, you lose yourself. Otherwise 
you lose who you, you are. Do, you do a little <laughs> bit. And, and even like, I don't think I ever lost myself. I was one of those people who made sure I knew I could, and I didn't want to go there, but still you have to be super conscious about it. And just like in a business, things pivot. We do as people, we pivot. I mean, you know, so you decide that you wanted to branch out and write the story that's been in your heart. Right. And that's what you did. So even though I didn't know that, see, I've seen you and talked to you several times and I didn't realize your words were fuzzy. No, oh, well, thanks. Sometimes well, I, I, get, I get frustrated because I never used to be a person who, I mean, I've said this to so many people. I used to be as sharp as a tack. Now I wasn't brilliant, but I used to be as sharp as a tack, you know, ABs in college. Yep. I just, I, I, I just used to be. And now I have to ask my kids, okay, what's that word? What's that word? Cause I can't think, you know, I'll, I'll tell them what I'm trying to think of and I can't, and I know some of it. I mean, I'm, I'm going to be 50 in May. So I know Yay. some of it does come with age too, but, but it's called fuzzy brain and it's a very big MS thing. Yeah. And, okay. um, you know, it's, it can be very frustrating, especially when I meet with people, um, potential investors for the film, because I want to be sharp, but there's some days I'm sharper than others. And it's yeah. just a part of the disease, you know? So uh, today's a pretty good day. <laughs> you know, I've stumbled a few <laughs> times, but it's a pretty good day. I think also people are just human and we have trouble finding the word, words or we need to stop and think about stuff sometimes Correct. anyway. Like that is normal human behavior. So unless it hit the point where I was like, Suzette, what's going on? I wouldn't, mm -hmm. I wouldn't know. Um, so now the story's evolved. You developed a production company, Grace Films, and that is a direct correlation to help people Mm -hmm. because of what you, I mean, like, it, I don't really think we need to make, I don't need to make this leap of why you're doing what you're doing. It's right. pretty apparent. So who are to, to, to wrap this up as far as funding for films and connecting with people who are more ideal people for you to get word out to and connect with? Um, well, you know, that's an interesting question. I think, I think people that, you know, see most people have this, so it's hard to put this into words. I don't, without be uh, sounding offensive, and I put you I'm trying not spot. to sound offensive. Right. So I don't want to be, you know, this isn't, I think everybody has a heart for other people. So that I'm not saying that some people do, some people don't, but I think people that have a heart or under, I guess it's people that really understand. I mean, everybody knows somebody who, who's been sexually abused, sexually molested, um, I think people that have a real heart to stop that, <laughs> you know, yeah. what I mean by that, or, or people that want to, want to branch out and say, okay, I am sick of hearing this child and this child and this child being abused or sexually abused or, or uh, trafficked or whatever, or this woman or this, it's really people that want to become a part of a project that's going to do that. Um, that's who I'm looking to people that really are saying, you know what, I'm done with this. I'm done with mm -hmm. reading these stories in the paper. I mean, I am so sick. Of, I'm sick of reading these stories in the paper. And I just need people to come alongside me that will say enough. You know, I'm taking I'm that next step, taking that next step. And, and of course, with funding, I need people that will come aside, that will come um, beside me, alongside me and that are able to fund this. Um, you know, our budget used to be a little lower, but now it's 1.2 million, um, uh, really one to five, one to one to one and a half. Million. Right. 
which is not much for a movie. And I know there are people out there that have that heart um, that yeah. want to be a part of the change, yeah. if you will. And this, you know, I will share this uh, script or all the information I have with anyone that's interested. Yeah. So um, praying people, I always ask for prayer for this project. I think, Yay. you know, I want God to be a part of this project. I want um, his leading and I want his influence on this project because I want nothing but the utmost integrity and the utmost, um, you know, respect for others and compassion and, you know, fill in the blank of whatever word you think is going mm -hmm. to work. But I just, this is, this is an important project to me. This is our uh, first project for Grace Films. Um, and so this is the kind of the Kickstarter project, I guess you could say. And it's, it's my baby. So I'm yeah. going to protect it, <laughs> you know, but I know this baby is going to do well and grow up and do well, so to speak. It, it's, it's going to have great influence. Um, and then it's going to allow Grace Films to further um, put films out there and, and further touch other communities in a very positive manner. And my, my life has brought me to this point. Like we were talking earlier, my life has brought me to this point. I can see how God wants me to operate in life now. I didn't see that about mm, 15 years ago, but I can see it now. And that is, I, I need to have an impact on people's lives that's going to be a good one. Um, I need to, that one person that's just struggled in life because maybe uh, somebody abused them or maybe they just don't feel worthy or whatever. I, I, I wanna be that one person that says, you are worthy. You know, those, those things don't define you. And I know I've said that many times in this, but that's, that's important to me. Those don't define you. Those experiences are important. They do change us and make us who we are, but they don't define you. You define you and you can come out of that. And I want to empower somebody to feel that, you know, that, yeah, life can really throw you curveballs, but you can be empowered to be strong and, and just, keep going. And then I want that person then once they're empowered to then reach out to another person, another person, another person, another person. I mean, that's, I, I don't know if that makes sense, but that's my ultimate yes, it does. Uh, goal, you know? Um, Suzette, thank you so much for being on and sharing that. And I love your goal. Well, thank you. Well, I love you too. I love what you do. I think it's awesome. I think it's, it's, it's really cool. And I've, we need to get together again soon. Yeah. <laughs>